Tonight we get to the church at Philadelphia. It's our seventh in the series. It's the sixth church. We have one more church to go next week. And tonight, this incredible period of time in the history of the church about which the Lord can say nothing bad. And the reason I begin that way is because we're going to look at these churches tonight that were founded during this period of time, these incredible men of God that the Lord used to bring forth some of the greatest of the Protestant denominations that exist in the world today, that today, tonight, are beginning that slow descent into irrelevance for one reason, one reason alone. And that's failure to teach the authority of the Word of God. And so tonight as we continue our journey here along with the Lord Jesus himself as we come to verse 7 here in Revelation chapter 3 and the church at Philadelphia, the faithful church. But it was also a fairly fragile or feeble church. It was also a revival-driven church. And it was very definitely a missions-oriented church. As we look at this incredible church that the Lord brings forth to our vision tonight as we continue these seven churches, this is one about which the Lord spoke so highly that it's almost hard to understand how it went from the founding principally in the mid-1800s to the place that it's at today. And it is a warning to us to stick to the main thing. And that's to keep teaching the Lord's Word until He comes and gets us. If we do that, then I believe the Lord will be able to say wonderful things about us we fail to do that and like all of the other churches to whom the Lord spoke very clearly either repent or remove your lampstand I think you have the choice to stand or to fall verse 7 begins this way and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things says he who is notice this holy I ask you a simple question tonight. Do you have in view the holiness of God? Because I think a lot of the church in the world does not have a good grasp of the holiness of God. So we've kind of lost, like with the teaching of repentance, we, we've lost our stomach for teaching that God is holy. And he is enthroned on high. And holy living is what he really wants out of his people. We're not saved by it. We're not pressured into it. But it is what he wants. God is holy. Notice the second thing. He who is true. God's word is true. 
Christ is true. He's unique. He's one of a kind. And he goes on to define this again, as you remember, in all of the churches, the Lord always says something about himself at the beginning of each letter. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who was and is and is to come. He now says, He who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. For I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Those are simple things, aren't they? It's very simple mission statement. Jesus Christ said, look, I've given you the key to David's kingdom. David's kingdom is speaking of the kingdom of the Lord. He says, here's the keys to the kingdom. Remember that I'm holy. Remember that I'm true or truth. And then all you need to do to make that come forth into this world is a simple couple of things. Keep my word and don't deny my name. It's not that hard. And yet how the world has messed up that particular calling. The simple teaching of God's word and to preach Christ crucified alone as the way of salvation. His name. Because it is indeed at the name of Jesus that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He's the only name. He's the name above all other names. And in fact, when you think of his name, he is the only name whereby men may be saved. Amen? And it is that name that is the way, and that name that is the truth, that name that is the life, and no one comes to the Father but by the name of Jesus. he says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. He reminds us again that during that day and time, there was a rogue element of the Jewish faith that was not the true synagogue of the Jews, but rather the synagogue of Satan. It was kind of a mixture uh, of paganism and Judaism. And they were hounding the Christians throughout Asia Minor at that time. And he said, those guys who say they are Jews but are not, but a lie... Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Notice why the Lord loves this church. Because they were faithful to his holiness, faithful to his truth, faithful to his word, and they faithfully taught his character and his nature who he is. Christ loves every church that's faithful to those things. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere. And again, that's a military term. It means to bear up in the battle. It means to hang tough. Stay in there when it looks grim. You know, oddly enough, after Sunday, I I was kind of expecting a flurry of emails. I got a few of those, as you might imagine. 
you were with us. But you know what I mainly got? Encouragement. Amen? And here's why. Just simply said we're going to stick to teaching the Word. That's it. You can take your hat off. You can hang it on that hall tree. Just teach the Word. Faithfully hang in there. I also will keep you. And I want you to notice that this now shifts to the future. The future for us even today. So there is an admonition that comes with the commendation. He says, hang in there, persevere. And then the Lord Jesus goes on to say something very wonderful, extremely beautiful to to us. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon, notice this, and this is the context of it, the whole world. That day is still coming. It's still yet future. We call it the time of Jacob's trouble. The day of the Lord. Daniel's 70th week. The tribulation. It's another one of those verses that we look at and go, Man, am I glad that I'm a child of God. If you're not rapture ready, you need to get rapture ready. Because those who love his appearing are going to be saved from that day of trial. The Bible's very clear on this. It's going to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on, notice it, the totality of the earth. Not the Middle East, not Asia Minor, not modern day Israel, not the Arab nations, not Europe. The whole world, the entire earth. And then he says something that's foreign to us even today. If you misunderstand the intent in the original language, I am coming quickly. This passage was written nearly 2,000 years ago. Hard for us to imagine because we think in our modern terms, quickly as in right now, like fast food now. Like quickly, like when men go shopping. (laughs) Quickly, we know what we want, we go where we know it is, we pick it up, we do not check the color, and we go straight to the checkout stand and then complain about the price. Quickly. But in this case, it's relative to the event that's being spoken of when it begins to happen. That event is the tribulation. And so these things, once they begin to unfold, are going to happen so fast, the world's head will spin. They haven't happened yet. But the Lord's not checking in with the earth to see if we're ready for the rapture of the church. He is going to come at a time when you know not. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will be raised. We who are alive and remain shall meet him in the air, and we will be with him forevermore. Amen? Amen. Quickly. 
Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. Now, why would he say that to a church that obviously was doing well? Because even people who are doing well can lose heart. People who are doing well can get tired. People who are doing well can begin to fade off into obscurity. And you're going to see that in some of the denominational founders that, that this very thing has happened. There was once a stack of crowns. And though the great men that came from this era, I'm sure, were welcomed by the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant, the legacies that they left behind are heading to the gutter even today. And many of those who could claim their heritage in great men like Charles Finney and Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, these incredible men of God, G.K. Chesterton, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. When you look at the names that came from this time, George Whitfield. As I've said before, I don't know that you... I, matter of fact, I know you can't roll over in your grave. Because if you're alive in Christ, you ain't in the grave. Amen? But I guarantee you, if they, if they had any idea, if they could look down on our world today, which I, I believe theologically I have a problem with people in heaven seeing what's going on here on earth, because it certainly would not be the fullness of joy. But if they could, they would be heartbroken. They would be crushed of spirit to see those things that were begun in the spirit now turn to the arm of flesh. Hold fast to what you have. We've already been told what they had. Faithfulness to the holiness of God, to his truth, to his word, and to the name of Christ. Simple gospel preaching and teaching of the truth of God's word. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name, for he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father God, as we gather tonight, Lord, this wonderful place where your name has been proclaimed faithfully, where your word has been taught with power and authority, where you, Jesus, are the center, where a holy God has been left holy, Lord, where you are the only way and the truth and the life. God, would you speak to us tonight by the power of your Spirit, interpret these words for us, that we might know and understand what the Spirit would say to your church tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice that there was a door that was open and no one can shut it, and one that was shut and no one can open it. And it's speaking of a time, there began about the 1790s, 
continued on and to this very day because there still is a part of that revival-driven church, that missional church, that church that finds its purpose in preaching the gospel, causing people to know the plan of salvation, seeing them come to faith in Christ, going to those places where the word has not gone. It is, there is, that church still exists. Part of this church just came back from India on that exact mission. But the period of time is being spoken of really is best described by the time that equates to Europe and to the United States in the roughly the mid-1800s. And in one year, think of this, in one year. Now imagine if this were to happen today. There, the population of the U.S. right now is about 300 and say 20 million people. Supposedly near half of which already know Jesus. Whether that's true or not, I do have to question at times. However, think of this. One year, 1857, more than one million people came to Christ in New England alone. From Virginia to mid-New Hampshire through the preaching of some very, very amazing men of God. Charles Finney was really the father of that modern revivalism. He was born in Warren, Connecticut, seventh child of farming parents. And by the time he began to preach in that post-revolutionary America, he would travel hundreds of miles on a circuit to simply go for no money. He rode on horseback, generally, or walked, so that he could preach a very simple message that Jesus Christ was the way that men could be saved. He was not a great orator. He didn't go to the finest schools, but he had within him that fire uh, that spurred on uh, another generation Dwight Moody, one of my favorites. Matter of fact, if you know much about Dwight Moody, he is Mr. Christian One-Liner. He's come up with probably all of you in here know some Moody-isms. He just was famous for being able to condense the words of the Bible into short statements. The Old Testament, what was revealed in the New was concealed in the Old. That's one of his. You see, these men began to do something that was very unusual for the time. They simply took out their Bible and read from them distinctively and gave it the sense and the meaning to anybody that would listen. That's all they did. And from D.L. Moody would come the Moody Bible Institute. Just amazing leadership that he provided. Played a very similar role that Charles Finney played before the Civil War after the Civil War. G.K. Chesterton, amazing man. By the time G.K. Chesterton died, he had written over a hundred books for which he received almost no royalties whatsoever. He just simply wanted to write about his Savior. Had his own magazine called G.K.'s Weekly. Charles Wesley and his brother John These guys founded the Methodist Church. 
couple of brothers born in Epworth, Lincolnshire, England. As you look at their lives, they weren't destined for a whole bunch of glory. Huge family. John was rescued from a fire miraculously when he was five years old. And these two guys, by the time the Lord had used them here in America, caused millions to come to Christ. Millions. The Lord opened a door. They walked through it. And you could go on and on. George Whitfield, G. Morgan Campbell, Charles Spurgeon, all common names to anyone who's walked with the Lord for any length of period of time. They all lived in the same period. Billy Sunday. Most of you have read at least one of C.S. Lewis's books, perhaps Screwtape Letters or one of his other amazing works. Tremendous guy. J.R.R. Tolkien. If, if you are a Lord of the Rings fan, what most people don't know is at the end of his life, Tolkien said that these books he wrote specifically to allow the gospel to be told in a different way. They brought millions of people to Christ. Reuben Torrey, Arch, Reuben Archer Torrey, excuse me, R.A. Torrey. If you've got anybody that you know is going to Biola, he was the first president sent there by D.L. Moody. Why am I telling you all this? Because there was a door that was opened that was unique, and we call it the Great Awakening. It brought forth revival in our country, and for a period of time, you absolutely could say that America was a Christian nation, distinctly and decidedly Christian. And if you travel to the East Coast and you look at the corner streets in almost any town on the East Coast, you're going to find a Methodist church on one corner and a Baptist church on the other corner and a Presbyterian church on the other corner and an Episcopal church on the other corner. It was called Church Corner. All of those denominations really were birthed during this period of time here in the U.S. And they were all preaching Christ crucified for the remission of sin. You see, so when you think of this period of time, you have to think of a couple of key thoughts. There's only one Jesus. There's always only been one Jesus. And there's a key to all of that. God began to tell the world about Jesus from day one. Sometimes people will ask the simple question, you know, well, did people get saved in the Old Testament a different way? And the answer is effectively Yes, because they waited in faith, but they were waiting for the same Savior that saves everyone today. There wasn't a different Savior for the Old Testament saints. They waited in faith for the one Savior, the one who tore the curtain, the one who ripped the veil, the one who first descended before he ascended. Everybody who's going to be in heaven has gotten there because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. So there's only one way of salvation. There isn't really two. Though there was an Old Testament dispensation or economy, there wasn't an Old Testament way of salvation. 
There was an Old Testament way of understanding the plan of salvation, and so people waited in faith in Abraham's bosom for the Lord to finish that work. And in some cases, they were there for 1,500 years. You imagine Abraham? Well, it's been a while, but I'm still waiting in faith. He never lost faith that one day, The one who holds the key of David would come. There in verse 7, To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things, says, He who is holy, he who is true, and he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. There's only one key to salvation. There's only one way. And what he's saying here, and this is an allusion back to an Old Testament prophecy, And when you really understand what was being said there, it's actually found in Isaiah 22, if you want to turn there. Isaiah 22 begins in the 22nd verse. The key of David is from an amazing passage. It's speaking of someone very unique to the time, someone who had not set foot on the earth, but someone that you all know, because Jesus Christ is of the tribe, same tribe as David. The key to the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. You can circle those, the his, the he's. And so he shall open and no one shall shut. Do you see the picture? Now imagine when this was written. This was 686 B.C. John's writing now in 90 A.D. It was 700 years earlier that these words were written by Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah the prophet begins to write under the influence of the Holy Spirit the very same words that John would utter. And I guarantee you, John did not have with him a scroll of the book of Isaiah. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. For I will fasten him. Notice the he's. He shall open. He shall shut. I will fashion him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Who do you think Isaiah was speaking of? None other than the Lord Jesus himself. Out of David's house. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Amen? He's the one that opens the doors to our gospel enterprise. He's the one that causes people to believe on his name. The Holy Spirit inspires those words, but it is none other than the same Jesus that saves you and I, saved you and I, that will save all who will call upon the name of the Lord. The offspring, the posterity, all the vessels, the small quantity, the cups, all the pitchers, for in that day, notice it now shifts ahead to the very same day that John is writing about. For in that day, another allusion to the last day, says the Lord of hosts, that peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed. He's saying, look, there's going to be some of the church that's going to lose its mooring. It'll be removed, cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. There's going to be some that aren't going to persevere. There's going to be some who aren't going to follow it all the way to the end. There's going to be some that do not stand fast or hold fast. 
So in his political right, David assumed the throne, and he had that key. And it's a re- it refers to the, the prophet Eliakim, and Eliakim actually held the key of David. And it was, in essence, the keys to the kingdom. When we use that phrase, hey, he's got the keys to the kingdom, it's this key. And one day the Lord Jesus is going to bring that key. It's the same key, I believe, that opens the bottomless pit. I think it's the one in the same key. It's the master key. You might look at it that way. If you're here at the church and you happen to be on the pastoral staff, we have what are called master keys. If you've never seen one, they're like the super key. They open every lock. And so I can walk around and people think they've locked me out. They're wrong. I actually have the master key. You put it in the door and I can, whatever they're doing, I can see it. Now multiply times infinity, if you can do that. And that's who you have in Christ Jesus. No matter what door is locked, he can open it. And no matter what door is open, if he doesn't want it open, he can lock it. He's absolutely sovereign. Paul understood this as he would write and be spoken of in the book of Acts. He had all kinds of opportunity where in Acts 14 a door had been opened. Colossians chapter 4, same thing, a door was opened unto him. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, same exact principle. He understood very clearly that God alone opens doors, windows of opportunity. And family of God, we need to step through them when God opens them. Sometimes we forget that God doesn't keep them open forever. I believe the church has an opportunity right now in our day and time. I believe the world, though headed ultimately for some really difficult times, and and even the church towards apostasy, I believe that's true, because I believe the end is on the horizon. I believe Jesus is coming soon. But I also believe that there is one last revival that can take place. And we need to seize the day. As a church, we have the words of life. Amen? If you're a Christian here and you're saved, you know the words of life. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All we got to do is preach Christ. Amen? Those are words of life. You have those words to speak to anyone who will hear you, even if they don't want to hear you. I mean, seriously, what are they going to do? You're going to plug their ears? You can get the gospel message out in 10 seconds. Jesus died for your sins. He doesn't want you to go to hell. Receive and believe on his name. That didn't even take 10 seconds. It's like a flash mob salvation thing. Just run and gospelize them. We have an opportunity. We need to see. We need a carpe diem. Seize the day. I don't know how much time we have. I do know this. The door is open now. Strangely enough, with what's going on with the Supreme Court decision, the people are talking about Jesus right now. Who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't. There's an open door. Tell them who Jesus is. Forget about who he isn't. Tell them who he is. Tell them the truth. You have that opportunity right now. There's probably not a person that you know that you couldn't speak the gospel message to them right now. Because they're wondering what these crazy, wacky Christians believe. 
It's exactly what was going on during John's time. What do you guys actually believe? Who are you? Persecution has always brought prosperity to the church, spiritual prosperity. Because when we don't have anything but Jesus, we just give him Jesus. Amen? And so he begins to say, look, there's true or there's good works versus religion. The world loves religion. There is no want for religion in our world. Amen? I was sharing with some of the guys today, true story, there is a cannabis church in Indiana. You may have seen the thing on the internet. You've all seen Michelangelo's picture of the Sistine Chapel. If you're a man here, we have it in the bathroom. We've actually got that photo in there. Haven't figured out why yet. I'll get to it later. (laughs) But it's the two fingers, one reaching out. One's supposed to be God's finger to Adam's finger, right? So what does Cannabis Church do? They put a joint in God's hand. And they're calling themselves a church. People are immigrating from Colorado. It's like, we'll go to that church. What do they believe? They believe in getting stoned. Okay. You've got the beer church in Milwaukee. There's no want for religious activity on the globe. Crazy, insane people reaching towards whomever they think God is. Ask a Hindu who they think God is. They can't tell you because there's over 2,000 of them. Ask a Buddhist. There isn't one. At the end, we all get snuffed out like a candle. We become part of the one great consciousness. There's no want for religious activity. What people need is a relationship. That's what they need. Amen? He says, look, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Whether people like it or not, the gospel's true. And no one can shut that door. And here's why. Because even if they don't like you, they tell you to stop it, you can still pray for them. And the whole, they can't do a thing about it, by the way. Because you can pray in silence, and your Father who is in heaven sees your prayers in secret and honors them. So pray them into the kingdom. They may not like it now, they'll love you later. Amen? No one can shut that. There's nothing the world can do to stop you from praying as long as you have breath. So pray them into the kingdom. Pray for that evil person you have at work. You're supposed to overcome evil by doing good. Amen? You're supposed to love those who persecute you and call you bad things falsely for his name's sake. They hate your guts because you're a Christian. Pray them into the kingdom. You not only saved your soul, but you're going to gain a friend in the process. It's a good deal. works both ways. For you have a little strength. It's not saying you don't have any. It's very important here that you get this little tiny distinction. You've got a little strength. 
Maybe you're worn out, maybe you're tired, maybe you really have some people around you that you just absolutely are having a struggle dealing with. You've still got a little strength. While you've still got a little strength and you're here, use what little strength you have for his kingdom. Kept my word. You haven't denied my name. You know, it's so awesome. When you think you've had no impact in someone's life, and then you find out maybe 10, 15 years later, every once in a while, I'll get an email or, you know, something from somebody that I knew when, you know, maybe I was in high school, and, you know, and I mean, that was so long ago that I can't even speak of it. (laughs) California was still part of Spain, I think, at the time. (laughs) But, you know, somebody, you're a what? You? No way. You know, I knew you were kind of religious back then. No, actually, I was a Christian back then. I belonged to the cannabis church. (laughs) See, some of you were in that same church, weren't you? (laughs) We were totally messed up. And yet we knew the real gospel. We're actually sharing gospel. Like, dude, you got to come to Jesus. <laughs> and now you look, and they're saved too. All because of your lame, weird prayer, but it was honest. You really wanted them to know Jesus. So Jesus opened a door that no one could shut. Amen. And I'm not trying to diminish the holiness here, but there are times in your life where you're not quite there, they're not quite there. Make advantage of what time you do have. Keep his word. Don't deny his name. I interesting guy I'd, I'd known for a long time, actually was one of our elders in Running Springs, and, and he tells the story this way. He actually was a pastor in another denomination whom I shall not name, was a pastor for quite some time, and he finally got saved by hearing one of his own sermons. You've got a little strength. He was an unbeliever repeating the gospel message, and God used the gospel message to save his own soul. Don't deny the Lord. His word goes forth and does what he purposes it. When God opens up a positive volition in your life or my life, we need to seize it. We don't need to be religious. We just need to seize the opportunity for God to use our lives. And he says, indeed, I'll make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who are Jews and say they're Jews, but they're not, I'll make them come and worship you. You know, one day, when you come charging back through the heavenlies on a white horse with Jesus after he's taken his church out, or maybe you take your last breath, the whole world is going to be ruled by the kingdom of God. You all, you're going to be, your Bible says you're going to one day be priests and kings. Think about it. The whole world is going to go, you're with him? King of kings, Lord of lords, yeah. That, I'm with him. Don't mess with him. 
because his name is Lion of the tribe of Judah. Even your arch enemies are one day going to bow down at your feet. It's a child of God. You see, Satan's real ace in playing the card game of life is religion. It's kind of hard to think about it that way, but it's really true because more people are deceived by pseudo-truth than they are by all the outright lies. There are a lot of people wandering around right now who think they're okay with God, but they're engaged in all kinds of things that God says. You can't be one of those and be a child of God. All you got to do is read what the Bible says, and you'll know that. And that's some things that we don't like to have named, like the habitually bitter person, a person who will not let go of their bitterness forever. And I'm not talking about you got a bad attitude. I'm talking about the core of your being is bitterness and spite and hate. Your Bible says that that is not the mark of a child of God. And people who practice such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not to be a legalist. That's to say it says what it says. So be careful about picking out which sins you think are your favorites. Because the moment you pick out one that you really like to point out to other people, all of a sudden you find one that touches a little closer to home. That's why he says, be holy, for I am holy. That's why he says, watch for my holiness. Because you can be really religious. You can go to church all day, every day, and not know the Lord Jesus church does not save you. It's never saved anyone. Jesus Christ alone saves you. It's belief in him. It's faith in him. It's not church. It's not religion. It's faith in Christ. It's the truth of who he is, that he in fact is the perfect one. He did die on Calvary's cross. He did spend three days in the grave. He did rise, and he is alive forevermore. Amen? Keep it simple. It's not religion. It's not church. Very often I have people will come and say, well, you know, I'm meaning to go to church, but, you know, I just don't feel like I fit in. None of us fit in. (laughs) Amen? If it was by merit, we should, let's all go. I'll go with you. If we're here because of some great thing we are or have done or could be, forget it. We're lost. We're here because of the blood of the precious Lamb of God was shed for our sins on Calvary's cross and we've received that remission of our sins and that price that was paid. Our debt has been wiped clean. You see, that's not religion. That's relationship. That's Him dying in your place and my place. And so he closes this passage by giving us a few final things. First thing he says, verse 10, is hang in there because you've kept my commandments to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He says, even if you make it into that time uh, that's going to be like any, none other that's ever happened in the course of human history. And as we go through the tribulations, we look at it here Uh, We're going to be studying from chapter 6 to chapter 19, almost in its entirety is speaking of that day and time. 
And when you start to see the bold judgments and the trumpet judgments and all that's going to go on in the earth, and then we look at Jesus as he speaks the all of a discourse, we look at what Isaiah said about the day of the Lord, we see all of those things unfold. God says, I'm going to save you from it. You're not going through it. I will keep you from that time, that hour of trial. We're told the reasoning for these things. He says, look, just hang in there. You're going to be okay. Man, I, I, I actually feel sorry for people who don't believe in the rapture of the church. Because there's several faulty things that come into your thinking. Number one, that somehow what we have right now could be as bad as what is described in your Bible is nuts. Because there's never been anything ever in the course of human history that's ever happened like what is contained in chapter 6 to 19. It has never happened. Have we had little glimpses of it? Sure. But has it fallen on the whole world simultaneously? Never. And so if you think you need to go through that, then I would ask you a simple question. Why would God do that to us if he saved us from his wrath, exactly as his word declares? First Thessalonians chapter 5, God's not appointed us under wrath, but unto salvation. Why would God do that? He's literally saved us. The word there that's translated from the hour of trial actually literally means out of, snatched away. You see, that hour of tribulation, that hour of trial, is a time like none other. And we, for sake of time tonight, are not getting into it because we're going to get into it when we get to those chapters. But the prophet Joel had a vision of that time. They're in the entire book, actually. But in chapter 2, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, there in verse 1. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness a day of gloominess, a day of thick clouds, and of darkness spread over all the mountains. A people have come great and strong, the likes of whom have never been, and there will not be any such after them. There's been all kinds of civilizations that have been violent and cruel. But this is speaking of, of a time when there's going to be cruelty on this earth like we have never known. And that's hard to fathom given what we do know. But as we read our Bibles, we're going to find out two-thirds, ultimately, almost three-quarters of the population of the entire world is going to die. I don't particularly want to be here for that, nor do I want anybody else to be here for that. I'd like that to be like three people, and they could all be demons as far as I'm concerned. I'd like no one to taste that wrath of God. But the fact of the matter is, men love darkness more than they love the light. And there will be some that choose to stay, and some will be saved out of it. But that time is going to be a horrific time. And God has saved us from it, snatched away by force. And so the Lord begins to wind these things up. He says, look, I have no intention of punishing my kids. And for that reason, I'm coming quickly. And when I come, it's going to be all good for us who love the Lord. Amen? Amen. Sometimes we, we look at the world and we go, Lord, why don't you just come back today? 
If you're one of those people that asked that question, let me give you the answer for me. I'll give you the answer for me. Because there are so many people on this earth that if the Lord Jesus came back today, they'd perish. On one hand, I'm looking forward to his imminent return. On the other hand, Lord, please don't come today because there's people that still don't know you. That is truly a dichotomy. That's, that's two sides. It's like, Lord, I want to go home, but I want them to be saved more than I want to go home. That was the dilemma Paul faced. He said, I'd rather go home. It's better for me to go to heaven. better for you that I stay. You see, as John wrote this some 2,000 years ago, he's speaking of quickly in a short period of time, and he's talking about in, in context that event beginning. And so when that time comes, and I don't know when it is. I got asked actually yesterday, well, do you think the rapture is going to be this year? I don't know. I don't have a direct line. There's no, you know, me and God don't have that kind of hookup. But I know this, we're closer than we've ever been. I know we are absolutely closer than we've ever been. And when the Lord sees that time and it's on the horizon, family of God, it's going to happen like that. People are always telling me, well, you know, this has to happen. They run through their proof texts of things that they believe need to happen for the Lord to come back. Let me just give you a little clue. There is not a single prophecy left to fulfill that inhibits the coming of the Lord. Not one. They could all happen. Anything that's left could happen just like that. In the instant, in the twinkling of an eye. So if you're one of those people who are thinking, well, this has to happen and that has to happen, the things that had to happen have happened. Israel is in the land speaking one language. The Valley of Dry Bones has been raised up. There has been a generation that saw that happen. They are nearing the end of their life. There are many of those things that are already finished. They're done. Nothing left. So you need to have your ticket punched for heaven. Because if it's not punched, if it's not marked heaven, destination heaven, you got a big issue. That might happen while you're sleeping tonight. No one will know the day or the hour. Revelation 22 actually says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. It's in my hand. That's speaking of that time when he's looked, I'm coming back the second time. Before that happens, we're actually out of here. So it's quickly and quickly. It's not like quickly and then like seven million years. It's like boom, boom. Done, done. When Jesus comes, it's going to surprise us all. God doesn't want us to cave in. He wants us to hold on. And he says, look, I'm going to make you pillars. And it's interesting to me when you travel around, especially in the Middle East and in, in Asia, modern-day Turkey, where all these cities are, you know the only thing that's left of almost every one of these great cities? Pillars. They were the strength. They were the support of these structures. And so when you travel, as we will when we go to Israel, we'll go to the synagogue at Capernaum. You know what's left? Pillars. 
You all are supposed to be pillars. Pillars of the truth. Pillars of his word. Pillars of the gospel. Pillars of things that will stand eternally. You're supposed to be pillars. And to he who overcomes, it says there in verse 12, I'll make him a pillar, a temple of, in the temple of my God. You see what he's really saying is, look, I want to use you guys as examples of strength in this very wishy-washy world. As our world goes from place to place, amen? Isn't it nuts? It's like if anybody had ever told me that when I was a late teenager, you know, maybe early 20s, if somebody had told me we would be today where we are today, I would have never believed you. Never would I have believed that we would be where we are today. There are some of us in this room that have been around. You know, I, re- I remember when people used to fly. I mean, everybody got a set of wings, and you wore a suit to get on a plane. And, you know, it was like a major, you must, oh man, your dad flew somewhere? Well, my dad built planes, so he got to fly. Everybody thought, you must be really rich, because nobody flew. You got on the old Pan Am you know, clip. We, my dad used to fly in the old prop-driven constellations. And now, they're like buses in the sky, amen? You go to the airport, you get on, you go to some other city, you get off. It's just the exact same thing we do here locally. Did you ever think that? I didn't think that happened. And look at our country and where we are today. I, I, when I was in grade school, you said a foul word, you got beat to death. You went to the principal's office, and he pulled Bertha off the wall. Just the sight of her, was, and it was her. He actually named that thing. Mr. Snidely, of all names, Mr. Snidely. Pulls down the paddle, what did you do? I remember sitting outside the office, and I, I'm convinced he never actually hit anybody with it. Just the sight of it scared people to death. You said, what? Grab your ankles. And then there was darkness <laughs> over the land. Yeah, because you said a foul word in school. today homosexuality was listed as a psychological disorder 30 years ago it is now a right a civil right wow I think the horses are warming up in heaven going faster and faster folks be a pillar be strong be courageous we don't know when the Lord's coming but I can tell you this he is and when he does he's coming for us first
to receive your reward, just exactly as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. Stand there at the beam of seat for those things done in this body, to be rewarded for the good, and to receive that last. You know, if you didn't do much for the Lord, let me, let me give you the good news. You're still going to heaven. Amen? Amen. I'd like to get a couple of crowns so I can give them back to Jesus. The least I can do. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the promises of your word. Lord, let us not be one of those churches that slides off into obscurity because we've stopped laying hold of your holiness. We, we no longer honor your truth. Lord, help us to never deny your word. Lord, we always have the name of Jesus on our lips and have an answer for the hope that lies within us for all who ask. And so God, as we wrap up this service tonight, God, there, there may be some tonight. Maybe there are some in this building tonight that have never said yes to you, Jesus. And Lord, tonight's the night to do business with you. Lord, tomorrow is promised to no man. Your word declares that simple truth. God, we don't know when we're going to take our last breath. And to do so without you is to step into a eternity without you. And so, Lord, as we end this service, as the elders, the pastors, prayer team members come forward, pray that if there's one person here tonight, that tonight's their night, that you'd impress upon them that incredible, glorious gift of salvation that comes by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless you. We praise you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Can I have you stand?